turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read verse 16 this morning from the Decalogue. If you remember the context, Israel is at the base of the mountain. They have prepared for several days for the coming of the Lord, who when He came, you see these circumstances described in verse 18, thunder, lightning flashes, sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people seeing it, trembling, standing at a distance. And so this word comes from God Himself to the nation that He had just redeemed out of the land of Egypt. Verse 16, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Eighth Commandment, someone has said, ties the hands, you shall not steal. So this one ties the tongue. This is the second commandment that deals specifically with the tongue. We have the commandment that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. Verse 7. This teaches us, just on the face of it, that God is the Lord of what His people say. He will hold them accountable for what they say. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So this commandment guards how we speak about one another and to one another. Third commandment guards the sacred nature of God's name. God is the Lord of our mouth, our lips, our tongue. He made us. And this commandment comes to a people who had lived as slaves in the land of Egypt, but now have been freed. They've been freed to serve the Lord. But as this moving society, you might say, is going through the wilderness, eventually heading across the Jordan River and into the promised land, they are to be a people of truth. Speaking truth. Just a brief explanation of the text before we look at how the Ninth Commandment safeguards the truth. You shall not is a singular verb. It's addressed to the nation, certainly, but focused on each person individually. So while God is speaking to all the nation, He's speaking to every single one in the nation, addressing the singular person. So this is to each of us. You shall not bear false witness. 
that bearing false witness, that verb means to answer or testify. It is a technical legal term used in contexts where there are court proceedings. It refers to someone who is on the witness stand, as it were, or in the dock, answering questions asked by the judge or the attorney, giving forth their witness statement. You shall not bear false witness against tells us that this is speech that is directed to the disadvantage of the one that they're speaking about. Now, I think the broader application suggests that you can lie in addition for someone else's advantage, where you're lying to seek to benefit someone else. And that certainly would be prohibited as well. But the focus here is doing your neighbor harm by what you say. And who's your neighbor? Remember the man wanting that defined in the Gospels? Who's my neighbor? Well, this word that's used, the end of verse 16, ranges from someone who lives nearby to you Even the Egyptians were called the neighbors, or they used this word of those Egyptians that they borrowed things from as they left Egypt. God said, borrow from your neighbors or ask of your neighbors. And they asked from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were glad to give, and that's how they spoiled the Egyptians, if you remember. So it ranges from someone who just simply lives nearby to you to someone whom you know well and regard using someone else's words here, with affection and trust. So it could be somebody you don't know but lives near to you or is within the realm of your living, whether you're away from your home, somebody you may interact with, but it could also refer to someone whom you know well. could be called your neighbor. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But God is calling his people to safeguard the truth in the nation. Certainly this is a command coming from him, so it is before him. He's the witness to all of our words. What are the duties required in this commandment? As you look at Christian confessions, find them describing the duty that's required here. Of course, if we're not to bear false witness, that means that we are to speak the truth the Westminster Assembly, and you could find Baptist catechisms or confessions or other Christian confessions that draw attention to this same positive duty or obligation. What is the duty or what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment at Westminster Assembly made up of pastors? Different denominations, but all holding to the truthfulness of Scripture and that being the foundation of faith and how we ought to live, they said that the duties of this commandment include the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. So the testimony certainly that's given in the court of law ought to correspond to reality. I had an opportunity recently to 
at least support the witness statement that I gave a couple of years ago. And because of the distance of time, I thought if it ever got down to actually testifying, I would want to rely upon that because of my memory. But I couldn't make anything up. I couldn't embellish what I saw and tell the truth. I could not imagine or exaggerate to make things seem worse or better. I could not, if faithful, eliminate important details so as to cloud the picture. I had to tell the truth. And that's a part of what it means to safeguard the truth, speaking the truth. Believing the truth is also a part of the duty. A charitable esteem, or you could say a loving regard for our neighbors. Loving, desiring, rejoicing in their good names, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces and defending their innocence. So believing the truth about someone means holding them in regard, not imagining evil against them, not thinking of them in such a way as you're not thinking according to truth. Because when we have resentment or anger towards someone, we tend to sometimes think of their motives and their way of living their life, and we sort of interpret things in terms of what is negative. But we have to believe what is true. And then rejoicing in the truth. They go on to say, already receiving of a good report, an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. That's not to say that you would never believe the evil report, but it would have to be justified based upon true evidence, witnesses. Discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name, and defending it when need requires, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. So, speaking the truth, believing the truth, rejoicing in the truth. Why do we do this? Well, God is obviously a God of truth if He gives us this command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor comes from the God of truth. The God who is himself true. Jeremiah 10.10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And the everlasting king at his wrath at earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. That verse teaches that really there is no other God. He's the true God. He's the one who is, one person said, who is really there. 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Someone described that teaching about God as genuineness. God is genuine. He is really there. He's the true God. But in addition to him being the true God, he also speaks the truth. Someone said he's ethically reliable. That is, there's always been, is now, and always will be a precise equivalency between what he thinks and what he says, 
what he says inerrantly reflects what he thinks, and what he thinks infallibly is reflected in what he says. His word is truth, and therefore it is reliable. So God is, in his communication, truthful always. This is his veracity, as someone's call it. Someone has, has named it. 1 Samuel 15, 29, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Titus 1, 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. This is the glory of our God. He cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And he's faithful. Not only does he tell the truth, and is he himself true, but he proves to be true by keeping his promises. Someone said this is a function of his unlimited power and capability, thus he could never commit himself to do something which he would eventually prove incapable. He never has to revise his word or renege on a promise. God keeps all of his promises. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth, or that word is faithfulness. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. So God is true. He speaks what is true. He always proves true to his word. And when he sent his son into the world, he sent his son to this world to declare the truth and for the sake of truth. And he, according to John 1.14, was full of grace and truth. And as he spoke, Jesus spoke the truth, even though they didn't believe him. John 8.45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And he also said in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth, again, was the issue when he was interviewed by Pilate. So you are a king, Pilate asked. Jesus answered, John writes, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And when he comes, what will be written on his thigh when he rides that horse, faithful and true? So the followers of the truth, capital T, need to be those who speak the truth. They need to live according to the truth by turning from what we are naturally, liars. We are born into this world liars. We're children of the devil. Until we come to Christ, we're in that family, and that's the way things are done. But when we come to Christ, the call from Ephesians and other passages is therefore laying aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Comes from Zechariah 8, 16. I don't know if you saw that on the front of the bulletin. 
These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another and do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. He hates lying. It's an abomination to him. When we come to the truth and confess the truth about Jesus as Lord... We believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, which is the truth. Then that initial confession is followed by and consistent with a life of repentance that turns away from falsehood and tells the truth. So I would ask you in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you following the truth? Are you safeguarding the truth? Are you speaking the truth? This is what God's people ought to be, truth-tellers. Now, we obviously don't just speak the truth, we speak it in love. So there is still some guidelines as to when we speak the truth, as to how we speak it, but we still speak it. There are times where it may be difficult to say, and It may not sound loving when you have to tell someone something that is the truth. We still need to speak the truth. So the ninth word of the Decalogue safeguards the truth. The God of truth, as he calls people out of this world and redeems them, they are to be a people of truth. And the ninth word also forbids falsehood of every kind. This phrase, bear false witness. I mentioned that it has a legal context if you read through and study this word. A witness is someone who sees and reports what has happened. A false witness is not speaking according to what they actually have seen and known. And the word false that's used here can refer in different contexts to either an act of deception, like someone who lives a lie or presents something that is deceptive, or it can be a statement that deviates from the truth, an intentionally deceptive statement. It's a technical term, as I said, this bearing false witness. You can see it over in chapter 23, just a couple pages over, perhaps in your Bible. Exodus 23, verse 1, You shall not bear a false report. You do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Deuteronomy, if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 19 in your Bible. Verse 16, start in verse 15 to give the context, the laws here, laws of landmarks, laws of testimony. Verse 15, Moses writes, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That certainly is a testimony to our sinfulness, that it has to be two or three witnesses, not just one. 
potential of one person telling a lie is high because of our sinfulness. But look at verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly... And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. What's the evil thing? It's bearing false witness. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. Twice in that list of things that the Lord hates. He hates lying. He hates false witnesses who utter lies. This invites the wrath of God, the anger of God, when someone lies, the tongue that lies. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are His delight, or faithfully are His delight. He hates it, it's an abomination. It's repulsive, disgusting that someone would lie because God is a God of truth. And as you read through the Proverbs, there's a theme there that you could see regarding false witnesses. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Proverbs 19.9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue, same word, hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So a witness is someone who is misleading intentionally others in a deceptive way to bring harm. They're doing some kind of action that's causing disadvantage to the neighbor. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. When Moses repeats this commandment, he actually uses a different word. In verse 20 of Deuteronomy 5, it's translated the same way. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, but the word that's used there is a word that means vain or vanity or worthless. It means unreal or empty, someone said, frivolous, insincere. And so what God is giving us in the second time this commandment is found in verse 18 is another insight as to the kind of words, the kind of witness that should not be given. Something that is empty or vain, it's empty or vain because it's not true. It doesn't correspond to any reality. And so the commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you're not to speak of what is not true. What is not true is empty 
What is not true does not correspond to reality. It's a worthless word. But that doesn't mean it can't have some effect to bring harm. So obviously you can see based on the context in the law, perjury in a court of law, bearing false witness when you're sitting on the witness stand would be against and a breaking of this law. Perjury is the voluntary violation of an oath or vow either by swearing to what is untrue or by omission to do what has been promised under oath. The danger in the context of law and the court of law is that when the person gives that testimony, what are they doing? Putting their hand on the Bible. In the context of Israel, of course, before God they're speaking. Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God, invoking God's name and then telling something that is not true. Under oath, you're actually calling God alongside to substantiate what you're saying. And so if it's a lie, you're calling the God of truth to then give witness and support to a lie. It's a flagrant offense against God. This is what the Jews did as they set up false witnesses against Jesus. Stephen was falsely accused in Acts chapter 6. Paul was falsely accused at different times. Jezebel, if you remember the story of Naboth and his vineyard, remember what happened? Naboth had this nice vineyard. Ahab looked at it and wanted it, and because Naboth wouldn't sell it to him because it was his family's property that Naboth had inherited and would be passed on through generations, Naboth was unwilling to sell it. And when Jezebel came in and saw how sullen Ahab was and learned the reason, what did she do? She actually went through the process, rather than just killing him, of setting up two false witnesses who came and publicly said that Naboth had cursed God and the king. And Naboth was executed. And Ahab took possession, and that's when Elijah confronted him for his sin. So you can find contexts in the Bible where, yes, this very thing, bearing false witness against your neighbor, there are people doing it, there are people in the background setting it up, and both would be sin, conspiracy to do that, but then also the actual doing of it would be sin. But is this really what God is forbidding only here? Is it just in that context that we're to tell the truth? As Calvin made comment about this commandment, he said, it makes no difference whether you understand here a solemn or judicial testimony or a common one couched in private conversation. For we must always come back to this. One particular vice is singled out from various kinds as an example, and the rest are brought under the same category, the one chosen being an especially foul vice. So what he's suggesting is God hates all lying, but this one he singles out, and it implies that any lie, intentional misleading of someone to bring them harm is sin. This would also include slander. 
slanders the communication of false charges and misrepresentations which defame and damage another person's reputation. Sometimes that, for Naboth, went into the court of law, but it doesn't always find itself there. Slander can take place in written print, certainly can come out of people's mouths. And when you slander someone and say something that is not true of them, you're actually bringing harm to their name and their reputation. What did Solomon say? A good name is to be chosen, rather chosen than great riches. We live in a day when someone can be slandered, and because people don't operate on the basis of two or three witnesses, and sometimes they find their fingers on a keyboard or their thumbs in their phone or whatever, that that slander or that communication goes out very quickly and within a short amount of time that slander can be disseminated and all people see is the slander and they assume that it's true. You may have seen something like that unfold. I have. David in his lifetime was the recipient of many slanders. Do you remember the story of David as he eventually was envied by Saul and then on the run from Saul and still faithful to Saul, he had to defend himself if he was ever within proximity to Saul that he was not what other people were making him out to be. Psalm 31 verse 13, he says, For I have heard the slander of many, terrors on every side while they took counsel together against me. They schemed to take away my life. Even Jonathan had to come to David's aid and tell Saul that he hasn't done anything. What has he done that you would take this course of action to take his life? And Saul, in that envious frame of mind and that interpretation of things, when he sent servants to the house of David where Michael, his daughter, was with David, and David saw them outside And eventually he was able to escape with the help of Michael. But do you remember what Michael said to Saul? That certainly would have been interpreted by Saul to be consistent with all of his thoughts of David. When he learned that David was gone, Michael was there, Saul said to Michael, 1 Samuel 19, 17, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go? so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, he said, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Remember, this is his daughter. And so now she has, because of fear, told a lie about David, that David actually threatened her life. David didn't threaten her life. But now that adds to Saul's narrative and his belief that David has done something wrong. That's certainly devilish. In fact, that's what the devil, the word devil means. His name means slanderer. He speaks what is not true. He slandered Job to God. And this is what he does, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that he is the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who brings slander before God. So malicious slander would also be forbidden by this commandment. And then lying. Not just perjury in a court. Not just slander on that level, but lying. Any 
means, someone has defined it as, by which falsehood is purposely passed off as if it were true, is lying. Another definition of lying, an intentionally deceptive message in the form of a statement. There's a book that I obtained this week. I'd seen references to it, wanted to get a sense of what this author was saying. Not a believing author, as far as I can tell. But she defines lying that way, an intentionally deceptive message in the form of a statement. She defines it that way because she argues that lies are simply part of a broader category of deception. And she uses the illustration of someone who is living a lie. They're living in such a way as to communicate something that's not true. God's word forbids both. Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal nor deal falsely. That would be lying by action. Nor lie to one another. That's lying in word. You shall not swear falsely by my name. So that would be speaking and using God's name in support of your lie. That heightens it because you're bringing God as a witness into your statement. Lying takes many forms, doesn't it? Deception, if we're talking about that broader category, as those men in the Westminster Assembly tried to list out some of them, either based upon Scripture or just based upon what we know lying is. They included forging someone's signature, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, holding our peace when iniquity or sin calls for a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. In other words, Equivocal means I'm saying something that is true, but the way that you understand it is different than the way I understand it. And so I'm saying it, if I say it that way, I'm saying it because I have an intent to mislead you. And then when I see that you're understanding that other way, if I'm lying, then the liar says, good. They understand it differently than the way that I mean it, and that way I can get out of this. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, that would be talking behind someone's back about them, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions. In other words, somebody does something, and you see what they did, and you interpret it, And even if they protest, you interpret it the way that you want to understand it, rather than the way they actually intended it. And then there's also flattering. Vainglorious boasting. Thinking or speaking too highly of ourselves. Or, they said, even too meanly. Not acknowledging gifts that we may have so that we can use them in the service of God. The next statement is denying the gifts and graces of God. Aggravating smaller faults, 
hiding, excusing of sins when called to free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing or, or following evil reports, stopping our ears against just defense. Remember Stephen was defending himself before the Sanhedrin, and what do they do? They stop their ears. They hated who he represented. They did not want to listen. They would not accept the truth, although he was speaking the truth. They couldn't resist the wisdom, and so they just killed him. Evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of, or of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, that is the credit of someone, rejoicing in their disgrace, and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration. That would be something that's believing what is not actually true of someone. Breach of lawful promises. Neglecting such things as are of good report and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others. Such things as procure a bad name. Now some of that's language that we may not identify with or use. It was written some time ago, but you can see there's quite a few things that we could do to deceive and to lie. Did you squeeze through that? Did you find yourself making your way through that list? Innocent I'm asking that question. If you said yes, I made it through that. You either weren't listening or didn't think about it. We are all sinful. And we all deceive. And if it's not words, there are many times it is just actions. Sometimes it is lying. The purpose of the lie is actually to cover up what we've done in some other way. And so we deceive so that people won't think certain things that are true of us. Now, when it's directed against a neighbor, because it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, we have to realize there is someone who is being harmed. There's a person that is being Harmed. Obviously, it's a sin against God, but when you bear false witness or you lie to someone, let's think for a little bit about that. I said earlier this could refer to someone who lives nearby, like the Egyptians did live by the Israelites. Exodus 11.2 uses this word when it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and God had said you borrow from your neighbors. They were their neighbors people that just live near them. But this word that's translated here is also translated friend. Exodus 33, the passage we read this morning, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. That's the word. Jeremiah 3 uses the word, and the phrase as it's translated in English is, surely as a woman treacherously departs from her 
and it's translated lover, but it's that word friend. So in that context, it is someone who has more than a friendship, obviously. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, your friend who is as your own soul. In Hosea 3, 1, the word is translated husband. In Song of Solomon 5, 1, it's in the context of a marriage relationship. As the invitation is to show love to one another, that's one of the terms that's used. And so the word, as it's translated against your neighbor, the way that it works in the original language is there's a preposition right before, it's actually connected, very directly connected to the word. But the preposition indicates that there's a disadvantage for the neighbor. The false witness is done in such a way that it brings harm to the other person. Does lying harm other people? Just a white lie, someone might say. Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates those it crushes. And a flattering mouth works ruin. The lie that Jezebel formed, gave to those two witnesses, actually resulted in Naboth's death. It also brought her harm in the end. And it also brought Ahab harm in the end. And of course, you could look at the life and ministry of Christ and how often he was lied about, what happened all the way to the cross. People did not believe the truth that he spoke, and instead they believed the lies that were being spoken of Christ. And you could say both of those fall into the intentional category. They were trying to bring harm. There's a time when David, if you remember this story in Samuel, he's running from Saul, and he finds his way to Ahimelech, who was a priest at the city of Nob. And when he got to Ahimelech, he told Ahimelech that he was on a mission from Saul. He wasn't on a mission from Saul. He asked for the sword of Goliath. He got the sword of Goliath. And if you follow that story, David's lie initially resulted in Ahimelech supporting him. But then in Saul's interpretation, he viewed Ahimelech as giving support to David, who he thought David was rebelling against him. Now you have to wonder what would have happened if David had told Ahimelech the truth. How would he have handled that same situation? Well, we really don't know. Word of God doesn't give us those possibilities, but we do know what happened subsequent to that is that whole city was slaughtered. But it was David's pressure circumstance where he was in danger, and as a result of that, he didn't know who to trust, but he still lied. He's not responsible for the actions of Saul, but he was responsible for his own actions. And so lying does destroy lives, sometimes unintentionally. David wasn't necessarily seeking Ahimelech's harm, but we see the end of that story, and we have to wonder what if David had actually told the truth. That writer wrote the book about lying, defined lying. 
her name is, <coughs> excuse me, Cicela Bach, she said, deceit and violence, these are the two forms of deliberate assault on human beings. Both can coerce people into acting against their will. Most harm that can befall victims through violence can come to them also through deceit, but deceit controls more subtly, for it works on belief as well as action. The knowledge of this coercive element in deception and of our vulnerability to it underlies our sense of the centrality of truthfulness. She says, of course, deception, again, like violence, can be used also in self-defense, even for sheer survival, But she says its potential for coercion and for destruction is such that society could scarcely function without some degree of truthfulness in speech and action. Now, it got a lot bigger than David there. When a whole city is destroyed and someone who is following him is not believing the truth, but then David is not telling the truth. And these are leaders And what happened to that society is starting to crumble in ways and be destroyed. And lying does destroy lives. It destroys relationships. Proverbs 16, verse 28, A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. That author again said, Imagine a society, no matter how ideal in other respects, where word and gesture could never be counted upon. Questions asked, answers given, information exchanged, all would be worthless. Were all statements randomly truthful or deceptive, action and choice would be undermined from the outset. There must be a minimal degree of trust in communication for language and action to be more than stabs in the dark. This is why some level of truthfulness has always been seen as essential to human society, no matter how deficient the observance of other moral principles Even the devils themselves, as someone has said, do not lie to one another since the society of hell could not subsist without truth any more than the others. A society then whose members were unable to distinguish truthful messages from deceptive ones would collapse. But even before such a general collapse, individual choice and survival would be imperiled. The search for food and shelter could depend on no expectations from others. A warning that a well was poisoned or a plea for help in an accident would come to be ignored unless independent confirmation could be found. All our choices depend on our estimates of what is the case. These estimates must in turn often rely on information from others. Lies distort this information and therefore our situation as we perceive it as well as our choices. A lie in one person's words injures the deceived person in his life. It leads him astray. It leads them astray. It turns them off the right path. I read a book recently. There's a few books that just kind of capture you and you just want to keep on reading right through. I think this story, I've shared a little bit of it before, but it astounded me. The book is called The Less People Know About Us. A story about a mother whose life was a lie. She was unfaithful to her husband. 
without his knowledge. She stole her daughter's identity, and she only learned about it much later in life. Actually destroyed her daughter's credit. She was constantly telling lies to cover up more lies. And then she died before all of that was revealed. So the point is lying destroys relationships, but what if that person is dead and gone? Well, here's what she wrote, the daughter. Sometimes when I think about all that I've lost, I rage against the unfairness of it all. In many ways, the financial impact of my family's identity theft was the least of the damage. You can rebuild your credit. You cannot rebuild your childhood. I cannot, for instance, meet up with my childhood best friend to catch up over coffee, talk about the boys we liked in high school or the regrettable outfits we wore. That best friend doesn't exist. Wasn't allowed to have her, wasn't able to spend hours a, a, a night on the phone with her when I should have been doing my homework. In fact, she said, it's hard for me to go home at all. The space between, and she describes the place where she lived, inspires a special and violent kind of anxiety in me. Even on the sunniest day, an ominous cloud seems to follow me across the barren landscape. I just read that and I say, that's terrible. All those lies. Within a family? Within a family? That's wife, husband, daughter. Those relationships are to be even closer. And oftentimes, the words that are used describing those family relationships... It's not necessarily this word neighbor because those relationships are even closer. Not only would you not lie to the disadvantage of a neighbor, but not to your own spouse. Not to your own child. Not to your parents. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 9. You could be sitting here thinking, I'm talking about somebody else. But God's word is addressing each one of us here. In other words, if you're thinking about someone else, that's the wrong person to think about first. Because our tendency is what? To, to kind of distance ourselves from these things and to start attributing them to somebody else. Don't fail to let God's word 
impact your own heart. Look at Jeremiah, verse 1, chapter 9. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. Jeremiah is looking for an Airbnb in a place you probably wouldn't want to go. He's looking for a hotel in the desert. Why? Because of the prevalence of sin. Verse 2, middle of the verse, For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And what's God's response to that? Well, among other things, look at verse 11. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. That's God's reaction to a society filled with lies. Down to the last person. But the church exists in the middle of that. We exist in the middle of that. This is an Old Testament context, but you understand what I'm saying. This is a nation. We live in a nation. Our nation might be characterized the same way. The solution is not to go find a wilderness destination. It is to live and speak the truth specifically to one another, but then also to other people in the midst of that. That's what the church does. We speak truth, every person with our neighbor, we speak truth because we have the truth, we know the God of truth. And in our homes, in our personal relationships with one another, in terms of our connection with one another in the body of Christ, what does Paul say? Do not lie to one another, for we are members of one another. We are united around the truth, and we are truth-speaking people. If I find myself lying, that's the old Joel. You just put your name in there. If you find yourself lying, but you've come to Jesus Christ, that's who you were, but now you're in Christ. And you've been forgiven for those sins. And don't miss that, that there is forgiveness for lying. God calls an abomination. He does hate it, but there is forgiveness with God so that he might be feared 
But as you're forgiven, then you speak the truth. You speak the truth to one another. You speak it in love. You build up God's people in the church, and in the church, this should be the realm of truth speaking. I mean, if I wasn't telling the truth this morning, you should go home. But this needs to be a place of truth, and that's why we open God's Word, because God's Word is the truth. And that's why we seek to apply it, so that we will be people of truth. Just in closing, over to Colossians. I have more, but we need to conclude this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Someone who has been redeemed by Christ, saved by Christ, forgiven by Christ, is united with Christ. Paul speaks of it in Colossians 3 verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, in light of that union that you have with Christ, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to what? To sin. To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Do not lie to one another. Not only are we members of one another, but that was the old you. The new you is not like that. And I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf. I'm talking about being in Christ. Because Christ always spoke the truth. In fact, those who are in God's image, if we, are to, if we do bear his image and we accurately reflect his image, then to speak lies as those made in the image of God is a lie. Because God never lies. So those who made in his image, who are made in his image, should never lie because you're presenting a lie about God by doing that. God is a God of truth. And praise the Lord, he's a God of forgiveness as well. And if you heard this message today and you've been confronted about something in your life, some lie or lies that you've told, I want to encourage you today, repent. Turn from it. You may need to talk to somebody that you lied to and clear up whatever you lied about. If you need some counsel, wanted to talk to someone, to pray with someone, I would be glad to pray with you, talk with you, try to help you. We get 
tangled up sometimes because we've lied and we've made a mess of things and we need to know how to make it right. That might be why you need counsel. But whatever you do, get right with the Lord. Tell Him the truth. Confess your sin. Tell Him the truth about what you've done. And then, by His grace and with His help, make it right.